today's scripture reading is from Leviticus chapter 1. You can find it on page 81 in the Blue Bible under a chair near you. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, and say to them, When one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring an offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for, the, for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons the priest shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces, and the sons of Aaron the priest shall put fire on the altar and arrange the wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons the priest shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat, and the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But its entrails and its legs shall be washed with water, and the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If his gift for a burnt offering is from the, her from the flock, from the sheep or goats, he shall bring a male without blemish, and he shall kill it on the north side of the altar before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar, and he shall cut it into pieces with its head and its fat, and the priest shall arrange them on the wood that is on the fire on the altar, but the entrails and the legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall offer all of it and burn it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If his offering is to the, to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds, then he shall bring his offering of turtle doves or pigeons. And the priest shall bring it to the altar and wring off his head and burn it on the altar. Its blood shall be drained out on the side of the altar. He shall remove its crop with its contents and cast it beside the altar on the east side in the place for ashes. He shall tear it open by its wings, but shall not sever it completely. And the priest shall burn it on the altar, on the wood that is on the fire. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. This is God's word. You can be seated. Well, good morning. Welcome to Resurrection OC this morning. Uh, my name is Bryce Hales. And I'm the pastor here, and it's, uh, it's great to be with you. Thanks so much, Mary, for uh, reading our passage this morning. We're going to spend the next uh, few minutes talking together about the passage Mary just read. But before we do that, I'd like to ask you to join me in prayer. Let's pray together. Almighty God, as we give our attention to your word, uh, these words that for most of us, I'm assuming, uh, are quite unfamiliar and strange. God, I pray that you would give us uh, curiosity, that you would help us to uh, hear what you are saying through your ancient word, by your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're in our second week in our study of the book of Leviticus. And... Um, Leviticus, I've heard it said, is a little bit like going through puberty. You only do it once, 
and uh, it's kind of awkward, and once you're done with it, you don't really want to talk about it again. <laughs> but Leviticus is about this. Leviticus is about, uh, the, the question that Leviticus poses to us is, how can we live with a God who is holy? How can people like us live with God? Um, how can we know God's presence in the everyday realities of our lives? For some of us, it's our regular practice to, uh, to maybe to pause for a few minutes in the morning and acknowledge God's presence in his word, or um, maybe before we eat, we stop and pray. Maybe, maybe you know, regularly, weekly or so, we give an hour or so um, uh, to, to come to church and to acknowledge God's presence. But Leviticus is about how can we live with an awareness of God's presence, not just an hour or a few minutes here and there, but uh, in the 24-7 day-to-day realities of our lives. That's the question Leviticus is posing to us. And uh, this morning we get right into the heart of it looking at, at sacrifice, the question of sacrifice. Um, and, and to set this up, I want to tell you a story. Um, several years ago, I found myself in the possession of a guitar amp. And um, I can't remember exactly the details of how I got this amp, but what I know is that I was in high school and um, I was probably the age of about seven, I started taking guitar lessons and I was always kind of just like this poser as a guitarist, trying really hard and, and just mostly um, succeeding in mediocrity. But I, uh, in high school, I had a friend named Greg and Greg played guitar and Greg was a few years older than me. And uh, he was a guy I kind of looked up to as a mentor, and, and um, Greg had this extra guitar amp that, I don't know, he wasn't using, and he told me he was going to sell it to me. And I thought, that would be great. Okay, I'm going to buy this amp from Greg, and then I'll be cool. Um, just owning the amp doesn't actually lead to playing it well, I, I found out. But I, I can't remember the details, but somehow I, I, I got the amp, and I never paid for it. Um, and that went on for years. Uh, and for a year, like, I graduated high school, went to college, I had Greg's amp, like, in my closet. And it kind of went from this thing to uh, where, like, I thought eventually I'm going to pay for this, to, well, clearly I'm never going to pay for this, to the dawning awareness that I think I stole Greg's amp, <laughs> to, oh, I feel bad whenever I look at that thing, so I don't use it, it's just, um, you got to the point where like, it was in my basement. I didn't use it, I didn't enjoy it. I felt bad whenever I saw it. I wasn't really in touch with Greg, but whenever I thought about him, I was like, I wonder if he's thinking about the fact that I stole his amp. Um, I wonder if he forgot, maybe he forgot, and it's fine, and I got a free amp. Maybe he's mad at me whenever he thinks about me. I didn't know where I stood, right? I didn't know because there was this thing that stood in the, in between us in our relationship and it wasn't ever just openly acknowledged. And so I can't tell you how much relief it brought me when, like two years ago, I got an email out of the blue from Greg. (laughs) Said, hey, do you still have that amp? And I emailed him back and I said, yeah. I mean, this has been like 15 years now. Like, yeah, and I feel bad every time I think about it. And he said, well, how about not feeling bad anymore, but my niece is trying to learn how to guitar, how to play the guitar, so could you just like get it to my niece? And I'm like, yes, I would be so happy to offload this thing on your niece and just be done with this whole business. 
Um, how can we know that we're okay? That is a question that sacrifice answers for us. In every relationship that we have, we are longing to know if we're okay. And as long as there is this thing that stands between us that is unacknowledged and undealt with, we just live with uncertainty. You know, the hope slash anxiousness that maybe he just forgot about it. Uh, maybe I got away with it. Or the fear that maybe she's really just mad at me but doesn't want to say anything. How can we know that we're okay? In every relationship, we are constantly asking, am I okay? Uh, my wife and I this week had an um, impassioned discussion. <laughs> and the next morning, it's, you know, we look up, we wake up, we look at each other, and we say, are we okay? Yeah, we're okay. Okay. Um, right? We're okay. But the question needs to be asked and answered. Isn't it interesting that even Facebook has a, uh, a category, you know, a, a relationship status, you know, are you married, are you dating, are you single, or the, it's complicated. And yet for some reason, we have a sort of a, a naivete when it comes to the way that we would relate to the God of the universe, that we acknowledge that when it comes to our relationships with other people, uh, people that we love, people we care about, our friends, our spouses, our kids, that, that there's a reality that relationships are complicated. And yet for some reason, um, we sort of have this naivete about our relationship with God that, that it's just, well, it is what it is, that I'm a good person, and, um, and surely God, you know, God, sure, I mean, God's a God of love. Surely he loves me, right? Right, 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 please, right? Um, how can we know that we're okay with God? That is the question that Leviticus answers. And Leviticus 1 shows us how we can look to God and know that we are okay. And Leviticus' solution is sacrifice. Now I know that that is not going to be super popular. Um, the thing about me and Greg, there was this thing that stood between us. And if I was going to know that we were going to be okay, a sacrifice had to be made. Either the sacrifice of me saying, I'm going to finally just pay for this thing, or I'm going to sacrifice by getting it back to you somehow, or Greg can make the sacrifice and say, hey, remember that amp? It's yours. Don't worry about it anymore. But either way, a sacrifice is necessary if we're going to be okay. Um, and the reality is that we are not very good at sacrifice. Um, there are two kinds of sacrifice that the book of Leviticus details. There are sacrifices that say, I'm sorry, and there are sacrifices that say, thank you. And the sacrifice that we're looking at uh, in Leviticus 1 is a sacrifice to say, I'm sorry. And we're not very good at saying, I'm sorry. Uh, we are much better at just kind of hoping it's going to go away, um, and, 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 but it's still there. <laughs> And just because we ignore that there's a problem doesn't mean that the problem doesn't, the effects of the problem don't work themselves out in our lives. And so often when there's a situation between a friend, we just kind of slowly back out of the relationship. We just kind of slowly bail on each other. Um, we wonder, is he mad at me? Is she thinking about what I did? 
Did he forget all about it? We live with this kind of vague uncertainty in our relationships. And so we're always wondering, are we okay? Are we okay? But Leviticus is going to show us that God comes to us and he's going to say to us, hey, let's deal with this. I'm not coming to you to make you feel awful about yourself. But if we're going to be okay, and if you are going to know that you are okay with God, you're going to have to look at God and say, I'm sorry. God's saying, let's just get it out in the open. I'm not trying to shame you. I'm trying to heal you. I don't want you to hide from me. I want you to know that we're okay. As a culture, we don't like the idea of sin. We think that sin is silly. We think that sin is naive. Um, as a culture, we think that we kind of got rid of the idea of sin, like, I don't know, in the 60s or something. Like, everybody was uptight in the 50s, and then we got rid of sin in the 60s, and now everything's great. But uh, we got rid of the idea of sin. Like, I just said sin in the last 30 seconds more times than you've heard the word in the last two weeks, probably, right? But just because we got rid of the idea of sin doesn't mean sin has stopped doing its thing in our lives. Uh, and the proof is we haven't become more free. Um, we, we have more material possessions that, as a culture than at any time in human history, and yet we're shackled in debt. Um, we are overly medicated. We work longer hours. We have the ability to get wherever we want to, but we complain that we are busy, like we are not people in charge of our own lives. Um, we think we've gotten rid of sin, but sin hasn't stopped doing its thing in our lives. We can try to ignore sin, but what it leaves us with is this vague sense of uneasiness. And Leviticus shows us that we don't have to relate to God just kind of hoping that everything is okay, or with like a uh, sort of bravado overconfidence that, yeah, I'm a good person, and so surely God, because he's a God of love, and everybody knows that that he's fine with me. Leviticus comes to us and says, you can't ignore your sin. You have to deal with it. But that's why sacrifice is such good news. God says, let's get this out in the open. Come to me and say, I'm sorry. And I will forgive you. The sacrifices in Leviticus, like I said, can be broken down into two categories. Sacrifices that say, I'm sorry. Sacrifices that say, thank you. And today we're going to look at the sacrifice that says, I'm sorry. Leviticus is going to help us to say, I'm sorry to God, so that our relationship with God can be restored. So that you don't have to wonder. You don't have to relate to God on the basis of your feelings. Um, on the basis of what you think is common sense. But you can relate to God knowing that, that, that you're okay with God. So how's that going to work? Well, there's two things that Leviticus... 1 shows us that I want you to see in Leviticus 1. And the first is how to approach God. Uh, first thing Leviticus 1 shows us is how to approach God. And then the second thing is what is the result of approaching God in that way. So first, how do you approach God? And what Leviticus 1 shows us is that to approach God, we need a substitute. If we're going to approach God, we need a substitute. If you and I, who are not holy people... Holy doesn't mean um, perfect. It doesn't mean holier than thou. Holy means difference. And we are not different people. We are just like everyone else. And God is different. He is distinct. He is pure goodness. And if you and I are going to relate, if we're going to live in the presence of God, if we're going to know his presence, the presence of God who is holy in our lives, 
We are going to have to relate to him by way of a substitute. In a way, I, I hope this isn't like um, uh, too trite to put it like this, but this is acknowledging what we all found out to be true in our first dating romantic experience in junior high which is if you are going to find out if she likes you, it is way too dangerous to pursue that question directly, right? You need to go to your friend and say, go to her friend and say, you know, ask if she likes me, and by fourth period, you'll know the answer, right? But it is way too dangerous to go up to her and ask that question directly. I hope that's not too, um, you know, flippant. But if you are going to relate to a God who is holy, you are going to have to have a go-between. And so Leviticus 1 specifies um, what that go-between looks like, ought to look like. And um, it it said, you notice as Mary was reading, that that it talks about three different kinds of animals. It says if you bring an animal from from the herd, it's to be a male without blemish. Uh, From the herd would be a bull, a a cow, right? uh, Or if you bring an animal and it's from an offering from the flock, which is either a sheep or a goat, it's to be a male without blemish, or you can bring a bird. Now, what does that mean? Well, what it's saying is that what God, God is saying to us, when you approach me, I don't care how much money you make. Um, a sac- you know, to sacrifice a cow, not many people in Israel would have had the means to offer as a burnt offering um, the sacrifice of a bull. And so God says, I want you to approach me regardless of your economic status, regardless of what you do for a living, how much cultural power or influence you have, you are welcome, I want you to come into my presence. Um, And so if you can't afford a bull, you can bring a goat or a sheep. And if you can't afford a sheep or a goat, you can bring a bird, you can go out and you can just catch a bird. Regardless of your economic status, God says, I want you to come into my presence. But the second thing he says is that regardless of what kind of animal it is, I want you to, uh, it it must be a male without blemish. Now, what's that mean? Well, the without blemish part is sort of obvious. Like, don't bring the runt of the litter that's only got three legs and is blind and you don't think is going to make it anyway. And so you bring that goat as the sacrifice, right? Um, it's got to be something that is costly that you're going to miss. Uh, the male part, <sighs> we're so like uh, hair trigger ready to like, what are you, what? God is not making an ontological statement about the relative value of men and women. Um, <laughs> I hope that didn't, like that probably just was way too ridiculous of a statement right there. But God is not making a value statement about male and female animals. What he's saying is that the reality of the situation is that a male is going to be more costly, right? A, a male, you've got to feed it probably more than a female animal. But a female animal, while you're feeding it, it can produce milk. It's going to produce more offspring. So a female animal is going to lead to added prosperity. But a male isn't going to produce milk. Um, a male, you might, uh, the average Israelite probably only had one, two, maybe three male animals in their herd or flock. So bringing the sacrifice of a male is a costly sacrifice. It's saying, regardless of your economic status, you need to bring something that is dear to you, that is precious to you, that is, that's something that you care about. It's got to actually be a sacrifice. And then it says that when you bring your sacrifice, 
you bring it to the entrance to the tent of meeting. Now Israel, um, Leviticus takes place about two months after Leviticus has come out of slavery in Egypt, and they're on their way to the promised land, and they're living in tents. And God says, I am going to dwell in your midst. I'm going to move in with you. I'm going to live in a tent too. We're all going to kind of camp together. It's like mom and dad sleeping on the living room floor and sleeping bags with the kids. God's saying, I'm going to do this too. And the tent of meeting is where is the entrance to where, you know, where God is living. And so Leviticus says, um, bring your sacrifice to the entrance to God's tent. And it says, lay your hand on the animal. Literally in Hebrew, it says, lean your hand. It's not just like you kind of tap it on the head. All right, see you later. (laughs) It's you lean on this animal. And and what what it's saying is that you establish a relationship with the sacrifice that is being made. Um, we, have the, we have this phrase still that I'm going to lean on you. What does that mean? It means I don't have the ability to do what is necessary here. I've come into God's presence, but I can only go so far. And so I'm going to lean on you. I'm going to lean on somebody else. I'm going to lean on this sacrifice. You need a go-between. You need someone to go into God's presence in your place. And then it says that the substitute will make atonement. Um, What does that mean? Atonement is one of these Bible words that we don't use a lot. But atonement is one of these words that kind of breaks down into its meaning. It means at-one-ment. It means that this substitute is going to take our place and represent us. And because this substitute is representing us, we are at-one with God. Atonement does two things. It says that, firstly, a debt has been paid. Uh, the debt that we owe God because of our sin has been paid by the life of this animal. Sin always incurs a debt. But secondly, it means that um, atonement means that purification has been made. That sin doesn't just incur a debt, but that it corrupts us, it defiles us, it makes us dirty. And the sacrifice makes us clean. Now, to say that sin, ah, sin owes a, a debt and it makes a dirt, ah, gosh, that sounds, like, don't you think, like, I feel like we, we hear that with two minds as, as a people in 2017. On the one hand, we say, as it refers to the Bible, like, come on, really? And on the other hand, and at the same time, do we not all know what it's like to feel burdened by something we have done? Do we not all know what it's like to feel dirty. Like, I have done things, and I have said things um, that have wounded other people, and I feel gross because of what I've done. And typically, if we think, if we just ignore it, with enough time, it'll eventually go away. Maybe he forgot it. Uh, maybe he forgot that thing I said. Maybe it didn't. Maybe she didn't notice. Uh, maybe, uh, maybe it's fun, right? And then we live with this anxiety about our relationships. God is saying to us, it's like God is saying, look me in the eye. Look me in the eye. You are forgiven. You are forgiven. You are clean. Your debt has been canceled. Not because you have earned it, but the substitute has taken your place. You are free. God is saying to us, I want to remove the debt that you owe. I want to, remove, I want to purify you. 
I don't, want to, I don't want you to relate to me just on the basis of the ups and downs of your feelings and mood swings. I don't want you to have this kind of false bravado of someone who pretends like, oh sure, everything, uh, everything's fine, everything's fine, I'm fine, can't you see I'm fine? And yet don't poke under the surface because inside I'm just trying to pretend and I'm, I'm afraid that I'm about to crumble. We don't have to pretend. God doesn't want us to pretend. Um, God is saying, I don't want you to live with this vague sense that, I mean, surely, come on, it's the 21st century. God's a God of love, and I'm a good person, and so everything's okay, I hope. Now God says, I want you to know. I want you to know that you are clean, that you are forgiven, that the weight has been lifted from your shoulders. God is saying you can rest and relax because you come to me through a substitute. He has taken your place. Your debt is canceled. You are made new. It's true. It's true. It is an objective fact. It's not true because you feel like it. It's true. And therefore, you should feel like it. Does that make sense? It's not true because you feel like it. It's true. And therefore, you should feel like it's true. Leviticus goes on to say that when you bring your sacrifice... You lay your hands on it, and then you are to slaughter it. And it's blood, which is its life, which we're, we're going to talk more about blood in a couple weeks in Leviticus. But its life will be, its blood will be brought into God's presence. Um, can you imagine what it would have been like to go to church? <laughs> you, know, you go to ch- Every week you go to church, and every once in a while you've got to get up, and you've got to slit the throat of an animal. I mean, can you imagine the, just the, the tactile nature of that worship service. Um, Or to be God's people in ancient Israel where in the center of your village or town or city there is perpetually a pillar of smoke going up that is a constant reminder that sacrifice is being made for you. And you can smell it. And no matter where you are there is this very physical, tactile reminder that you are forgiven. I think that that would cause us to live with a, we would have so much more of a gravity about our own sin, right? Not the, ah, oh, it's fine, I'll be so tight, God doesn't care. No, there's an animal who's going to die because of our sin. We'd have a seriousness about it, and yet we would have a level of confidence, a humble confidence that, you know what? It doesn't matter that I woke up this morning and I remembered something I said yesterday and now I feel awful about myself. You are forgiven. Sacrifice has been made. When we come into the New Testament, um, see, this picture in Leviticus 1, I think is beautiful. And yet I still think that even in light of the, you know, all I've just said in 20 minutes, um, isn't there still just a part of you going, really, but a cow? Like a cow is going to forgive me of my sin? Um, and when we come into the New Testament, as the, at the, as the story of God's relation to his people advances and develops, we see what is just a shadow in the book of Leviticus. Leviticus is like a map that helps us understand the reality of our everyday lives. And as the story comes into the New Testament, we see in fuller, more beautiful, potent imagery what is really going on and how we can relate and enter into the presence of God. 
And this story takes a dramatic turn when, you know, it really, in, in some of the very early words in the New Testament, John the Baptist stands up. And he sees Jesus walking and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. As the story of God's people develops, we see that Jesus is the one true sacrifice. We see why, why, was, um, why is it so important that Jesus lived without sin, that he obeyed God's law in every minute particular because he is the Lamb without blemish. That he lived a perfect life. Why is it so important that Jesus went to the cross? Because on the cross, Jesus dies. Jesus offers up his life as the ultimate sacrifice. Jesus is the sacrifice that every bull and goat and sheep and bird for thousands of years has been anticipating. He is the one true sacrifice who brings us into the presence of God. The sacrifices of Leviticus find their fulfillment in Jesus. And what it means to be a Christian is that you draw near to God through Jesus. That you don't draw near to God saying, ah, it's common sense, God loves me, he's a good guy, it's fine, I think I'm fine. Now you draw near to God because Jesus has bought your way. Jesus has given himself for you. What it means to be a Christian is to draw near to God leaning on Jesus, trusting him to pay the debt that we owe, and asking him to cleanse us. Being a Christian means looking to God and saying, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm not going to try to just ignore what I've done. I'm not going to just try to say, um, oh, yeah, it's, yeah. it's fine, it's fine, it's fine. Right? You're like, surely, God, you don't care about the words I use. Surely, God, you don't really care about what I do when no one's... No, God, God cares. And we look to him and we say, God, I'm sorry. Thank you that you have given your son as my sacrifice. I, re- I come into your presence because Jesus has bought me. Jesus has paid my debt. Jesus has cleansed me from sin. God, please accept Jesus as my substitute. I think we have sometimes this vague sense as Christians that wasn't it like, wasn't there like a different way to relate to God in the Old Testament? And then Jesus came and everything changed. No. For thousands of years, the shadow of the coming sacrifice of Jesus was revealed in, you know, in the midst, enacted in the midst of God's people. Daily, weekly, this pillar of smoke going up. It's a constant reminder that our, there are consequences to sin, and yet a sacrifice has been made. But nobody ever was forgiven by God because a cow or a goat or a sheep or a bird was killed. For thousands of years, these sacrifices were anticipating the one true sacrifice of Jesus. It is done. Sacrifice has been made. It is a historical fact. It happened at a particular place at a particular time in history. It happened whether you're aware of it. It happened whether you feel good about it, whether you feel guilty about it. It happened for you. So you can relate, enter into God's presence, saying, I claim Jesus as my sacrifice. Okay, that's the first thing. Much more briefly, what is the result of entering into God's presence by way of sacrifice, by way of a substitute? Well, the result um, is that we see, uh, well, let me, let me say this first. My freshman year, 
in high school. Um, I remember this, this moment where I, um, I know you can tell by looking at me that I have the, uh, the, physique, of a, the physique of an athlete, right? I was an athlete in high school, and uh, I was <laughs> my, my high school career started off well because I was a, um, a runner, and I was on the cross-country team, and I was, I was on the varsity cross-country team my freshman year, which meant I was the first freshman in my high school to have a letterman's jacket, and I wore that thing to school every day, and it was awesome until soccer season started. Uh, because, you know, soccer, see, uh, soccer is a much more ambiguous sport. Running is very clear who's faster, right? But soccer, all of a sudden, so we have a soccer tryouts, and uh, we have a week or two weeks of soccer tryouts, and then at the end of the week of tri two weeks of tryouts, we go meet with the coach. And we're all outside the locker room, and one by one, guys go in to go meet with the coach and find out, did you make the team? And I remember go seeing, you know, friends going in there and, you know, guys coming out, you know, happy, or some guys, like, found the back door out, I guess, or, you know, we didn't see, and I, okay, so then I go in, I go to meet, and I sit down in the office with Coach Mark, and he says, I'm going to take you, but you're going to have to work really hard. And I remember thinking, and that is like the statement of my life. I'm going to take you, but you're going to have to work really hard. And I think that for Christians, the majority of us are relating to God like that. Where God is saying, okay, I'm going to take you, but you're going to have to prove it. You're going to have to work really hard. You're going to have to show that I didn't make the wrong decision here. Um, some of, many of us, I think, if we're Christians, we feel like uh, God accepts us maybe like on a technicality. Um, like, uh, there's going to be a day that will come when we are in a courtroom, and the, the, you know, the verdict will be about to be read, and God will say, you've done this and this and this and this and this. And he looks down at the bottom of the form, and the Jesus box is checked, and he's like, okay, well, I'm going to let you off. Um, we feel like God endures us because of the Jesus technicality. Because that one time, that one camp in middle school, we prayed that prayer, and therefore Jesus, uh, God has to let us off. But what we see here in Leviticus 1 is the result of the sacrifice that has been made for us. And we saw it said this three times for each type of sacrifice. In verses 9 and 13 and 17, it says that the priest will place the sacrifice on the fire, and it is consumed, and then it says, it is a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. The fragrance of the offering goes up into God's presence, and it says that he likes it. It is pleasing to him. And remember, there is an identification between the worshiper, the one, the one bringing the offering, and the offering itself and so God's assessment of the offering is the same as his assessment of the one, the worshiper, who is bringing that offering. Does that make sense? God doesn't have one view of the offering, that it's great, and the one who brings the offering says, ah, you, you disgust me, but I have to let you in. No, God says of you what he says, that the aroma of you is fragrant and pleasing. Uh, a couple of weeks, I don't know, maybe six weeks ago, Ashley took our kids. Uh, there was this field in San Juan that was full of sweet peas. And I, I didn't go, but apparently the kids like ran around and in this field of sweet peas and it was beautiful and it's fragrant. And they brought home these bouquets 
of sweet pea. Oh, they're sweet peas, right? And they, and they had these bouquets all over our house. And I walked in the door, and it was just, the fragrance was overwhelming. It was amazing. And for a couple days, just the smell of coming home was incredible. It was wonderful. It was beautiful. And that is the way God looks at you. That is his assessment of you when you enter his presence through Jesus. He doesn't endure you. God is saying, that's how I feel about my people. They bring me joy. I love being in the presence of my people. I think every parent has had a moment where something like this has happened, where your child crawls up into your lap. And um, just for a brief, you know, three seconds, they're calm. (laughs) And you know it's not going to last. And what do you do? You you smell their boyness. Your daughter's scent. And it is so fulfilling. It's so enriching. And that's the way God looks at his children. He doesn't say, just barely acceptable. He says, yes, pleasing, wonderful, beautiful. I am so satisfied with the scent of you. Can you imagine what it would be like to live as if that were true? Um, Can you imagine, on the other hand, what it's like to play your first soccer game in a high school stadium. Um, I've never played a soccer game on a field where there was a bleachers, you know? And all of a sudden, I'm walking onto the soccer field, and there's a stadium with my parents and friends and classmates who I don't like, and strangers, and everybody's watching this game. And the coach has said, I will take you, but you better work hard. not really the recipe for a a great soccer game. But that's how I live my life, moment by moment. I will take you, but you better work hard enough. What's the difference between that and living like, God loves the smell of me. (laughs) He's so, he gets a kick out of me. He is so pleased with me. Ephesians 5, 2, the Apostle Paul says, Therefore, actually verse 1 and 2, he says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. Okay, that's what he's saying to do. Live your life as you're imitating God. Walk as his child because Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. God loves you, so therefore live like it's true. You see what he's saying? You don't have to hide from God. You don't have to live every moment of your life tentatively, wondering, am I doing it right? Am I working hard enough? God gets a kick out of you. He sees you. He's like, you're not doing it very good, but it's really cute. (laughs) I love it. You don't have to worry that God's going to change his mind where you're going to do something, and he's going to go, oh my gosh, I didn't see that coming. Sorry. You can say, I'm sorry to God, because you know what his response is going to be. You don't have to live with this vague, like, I know I did it, but if I don't say anything, it'll, uh. No, you can look God in the face and say, I'm sorry. 
untrusted in Jesus. Thank you. Thank you. This morning, um, I'll finish with this. This morning, um, you know, my wife is like a single parent on Sunday mornings. And um, pastors' wives around the country are looking forward to Mother's Day starting after church is over this morning. And um, I could hear sounds going on, but I was in my office with the door shut, preparing uh, for this morning. And and um, I didn't know what was going on, but eventually my, I could tell the whole family was up. My wife came in and she said, um, she said, a couple of our kids um, brought me, when they were trying to bring me breakfast in bed this morning. And um, she said, she began to tell me, they're coming up the stairs and they found the silver platter and they got like a, an egg in the, in the, that was in the, um, it was in the kit in the refrigerator and it was a hard boiled egg and they like peeled it and they, they couldn't they knew they couldn't make toast, so they just got a piece of bread and they buttered it or put peanut butter on it and they bring it up the stairs and, and Ashley was coming downstairs as they were bringing this upstairs. Um, and that's that's beautiful, isn't it? Uh, why did they do that? Because they love their mom. Because they love their mom. Um, how do they show their love for their mom? By sacrifice. By thinking I'm going to do this thing for my mom. Right? It doesn't have to be very good. But just hearing that story, like Ashley's telling me, it's welling up with tears. Why? Because the essence of love is sacrifice. That any relationship that's worth anything requires sacrifice. And that's what it means to relate to God. Leviticus shows us that we come into God's presence not wondering if we perform in the correct way, will he finally be satisfied with us? Now Leviticus shows us that we can come to God and say, I'm sorry. I blew it again. But we can say to God, I'm sorry, because we know without a shadow of a doubt that he accepts us. Because he doesn't accept you on the basis of what you've done. He accepts you on the basis of a substitute. Jesus has given himself for you. And therefore, when God looks at you, He doesn't tolerate you, but He is thrilled with you. He loves you. He sees everything about you, and He smiles at you. Will you pray with me? God, thank you for this beautiful and strange passage that shows us on the one hand brings us face to face with the reality that sin is real and and guilt will do its thing in our lives and if we just ignore it and hope that it will go away it will tear us up and we'll never really know if we're okay with you with our spouse with our kids with our friends with our boss we'll live with this vague uncertainty just hoping that nobody's really that mad at us God, thank you for this awareness that that something has to die because of our sin. And yet, God, faced with that reality, we are so overwhelmingly grateful that Jesus came and he lived, that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That he gave himself for us so that we don't have to die but that we can know you and be known by you, that we can enter your presence humbly and yet with a sort of humble confidence, the confidence of a child 
who comes to their Father because you love us. God, would you help us to know the depth of his sacrifice. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to do something a little bit different this morning. It it, it seems appropriate in light of just the, the potency of this passage to take a minute to respond. And so... What I want to invite you to do is we're going to sing a song of response, a song of confession, a song of asking God to have mercy upon us. It's a simple way to say to God, I'm sorry. And um, the, the reality is that for those of us who are Christians, we never get to the place where we don't need, need to say I'm sorry to God. Uh, though he accepts us in Jesus, we continue to sin. We continue to fall short of the people that he has called us to be. And so it is appropriate for us to respond to God regularly, but I think especially this morning, by just saying, God, I'm sorry. Thank you for Jesus. And so we're going to sing this song, and I encourage you to make that your prayer. But I also want to say this morning that, that there may be people here this morning who have never actually said to God, I'm sorry. And so I want to invite you to do that now. Um, there is no guilt. There is no shame. Um, great enough that would keep you away from God. He doesn't encourage you to repent of your sin, to acknowledge your guilt and to say, I'm sorry. He doesn't encourage you to do that because he wants to laugh at you. He encourages you to say, I'm sorry, because he wants to heal you. So let me encourage you as we sing this song of response to, uh, to say to God, I'm sorry. If you want to do that in silence, Um, in in just a silent prayer to God maybe you want to use the words of the song and make it your own but let me encourage you to respond to the sacrifice of Leviticus 1 this morning by saying I'm sorry to God